how where we start determines just about everything else, or at least impacts everything else. Now, I have to admit, I'm not really a natural optimist at all, really, but I'm kind of working on it. And when I say that, I don't mean being an optimist that you ignore that this world is sometimes dark and evil and that everything is always sunshine and rainbows and butterflies, because it certainly isn't. But when you think about uh, the origins of the universe, it should impact your day-to-day -day outlook, your day-to-day -day attitude, because that is a fundamental belief that will shape how you understand everything. What is this creation that you and I live in? And as we discussed last week, how you answer that is important. Because if everything, as is popularly asserted, comes from this singularity, this compacting of molecules and matter, and then there's this big bang, and poof, now you have this universe. Well, then the answer is, we live in an unhappy or a happy accident. That's all there really is to any of this. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. And that means your life, just like this universe, has no meaning, has no purpose. And really, your life is just another unhappy or happy accident. And that should be a great cause for anxiety for all of us. Because literally, anything could happen at any moment when you set foot out on the door in the morning. Your life could be gone. If this universe is governed by chance and chaos, here's the good news, then you don't have to worry because none of it matters anyways. If everything is the result of impersonal time plus chance, then nothing matters and, well, it's all just going to end anyways. And then that view of the world, there's really no such thing as good or evil. There just is what there is because there is no law to the universe. There's only existence. And if you remember last week we talked about that Sartre says existence comes first and then you make meaning from it. So all of our meaning that you have is just self-made. You just decide for yourself what things mean. But good and bad are just words for either like this or I don't like that. And that ends with you. And like we spoke last week about Dawkins, another atheist, Russell Bertrand put it this way. When he talked about the beginnings of the universe. Listen carefully to what he wrote. He says that man is the product of causes which have no provision of the end that they are achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collections of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration of the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on this firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Good news this morning. This universe is destined to end. There's no point to it. All we have is unyielding despair. And if you build your life upon that, 
then your soul will find habitation. Now we may scoff at Bertrand, um, but he's right. If God did not create the universe, that's all that there is. He is at least willing to be honest. And with you and I, we can look at the evils of this world as Christians, of which there are many, and we can say, hey, maybe the problem is the universe. Maybe the problem is the world uh, that we live in. And what Christianity is really about is trying to escape that world, trying to remove ourselves from the evilness that is physical reality. And that type, type of thinking was very common in the first centuries of the church. And it's got a fancy name, and that fancy name is Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnosticism teaches that creation, or physical reality, is inherently evil. It is inherently something to be escaped, to be liberated from. And the way to do that was through gaining special enlightenment, secret knowledge, that will free you from the bondage of your physical body in this physical world. You see, what really matters is the spirit or the mind, not the body not creation as a whole. Now, to be fair, the reason why Gnosticism took root in the church is a lot of the Bible's teachings sound similar, sound very similar to Gnosticism. Jesus commands us not to store up treasures in this earth because they will rot and they will decay. So store up treasures in heaven. He says, don't fear those who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can destroy your soul. We are instructed again and again to wait for the coming of the kingdom and to separate ourselves from the world and its defiling practices. And the uncareful pastor has pushed many Christians to adopt some form of Gnosticism. And so we, treat, or we teach that true godliness or true holiness is found in becoming like monks or nuns or someone who's just a curmudgeon. It doesn't have any fun in this life whatsoever. If you want to be holy, you better make sure you don't smile at all. But if we read these texts carefully, and we understand what they are saying, and we also understand what's going on in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, then we know that we can't be Gnostics. We can't look at the world and say it's inherently evil. If godliness, that is being like God, is about or is not caring about the physical universe, then why did God create it in the first place? And why did he send his son to join it? The goal of the gospel is not to escape creation. And part of the way we get there is knowing that creation is inherently good. That God made it and he said it is good. And so today I want us to see three truths from these, this chapter here about the goodness of creation. And the first is this. God designs, he orders, and he divides creation. We read this. Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And as we continue throughout the chapter, you read that God separates the land from the water, the water from the expanse, the plants from among themselves, and the animals according to their kinds. And what you see here is God 
deliberately and intentionally designing and dividing creation the way he sees fit. Light and darkness exist, and they really are opposites. They're separate from one another because God designed it to be that way. He separated the two from each other. So as you live in Minnesota in this time of year where it gets dark at about 4 p.m., you see the handiwork of God. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. A separation between the light and the darkness. And throughout the rhythms of our own lives, we're testified to again and again, God ordered this universe. He designed it. It is the rhythm of your life. And he did it, and it was good. And we see his hand also in the, the design and distinctions of the living world. That there is a world of difference between the kingdom of plants and the kingdom of animals. Both of them are living, and yet they are different. Whether you're looking at the splendor of a giant sequoia tree, or coming again in the, the, the coming weeks, you'll see the beauty of trees that are just covered in snow. You're seeing the goodness of God. You're seeing his design. You're seeing part of what he has made. My kids, they love animals. From snakes, to lions, to tigers, to sharks. The animal kingdom is divided up by mammals, fish, reptiles, insects, and so much more. And why is that so? Because God ordered and designed and divided. There is a true diversity in the animal kingdom that is breathtaking and wonderful. And science studies this. It studies this order. It studies these divisions. Because God has placed it in the heart of the, his image bearers to do as he has done. To interact with his creation. And so we have in the scientific world domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Are these categories just arbitrary? Do these categories come from random chance and chaos? Or do they reflect that God has ordered, divided, and separated this world as it is supposed to be? See, here's the problem. If this universe came from an impersonal beginning, plus time and plus chance, it never can lead to order. This universe is fundamentally then chaotic. And if this universe is fundamentally chaotic, there is no foundation for science at all. Not even a little bit. This is why Christians have never been anti-science. This is why science only really came as we know it today because of the Christian faith. It sprung up in a specific time of history where Christianity was assumed. What do I mean by this? The scientific method is built off the belief that the universe is not chaotic. That you can order experiments, that you can have controls, and that you will get the same result over and over and over again because you live in an ordered and designed and separated universe. The type of universe necessary for science is the Christian one. And that's why you have those supercomputers in your pocket. It's because you live in an ordered universe designed by a good God. Second, we see that creation is described as very good. 
It is very good. Throughout the creation account, God makes something a part of his creation. He declares that it is good. And then in verse 31, as he looks at the totality of his creation, he says it's very good. This goodness tells us that creation is not, at least in its origin, and it's a beginning, evil. It is not physicality that enslaves us. It is not your body that you need to escape. The physical universe was made by God, and He says it is good. And that is good news for you and me, because we are a part of that declaration. And let's be honest, man is sinful, man is a sinner. And yet, in his image-bearing, he still maintains that goodness, that worthwhileness, because it reflects God himself. This goodness comes from the Creator. Why is creation good? Because in the abundance and overflow of his goodness, God made things. And he says, they reflect who I am. And this is where Gnosticism and its Christian counterparts, asceticism, that is denying all physical goods in the pursuit of holiness, go off course. To say creation is evil is to say that God is not good. That he is wrong when he says creation is good. This doesn't mean we forget the curse and sin and corruption and all that. But fundamentally, creation is good. Because God says so. What do I mean by good? I went round and round this week with some pastor friends. What do they mean by good? What is God saying when he says creation is, is good? Well, I think it's at least two things. First, this references the quality of creation and its morality. Well, let's, let's dive into that. By quality, I mean that there is a qualitative goodness to creation. It's beauty. It's functionality. It did what God intended it to do. And it's enjoyability to God and man. When you eat a delicious meal, you will taste it and you will say, this tastes good. It's quality food. It's not what you get through the drive-thru. In a similar way, creation was good in that it overflows with beauty, functionality, and enjoyability. Food not only nourishes your body, but it tastes delicious. God didn't have to make it that way. It could all taste like broccoli. But it doesn't. By morally good, I do not mean that creation is making choices, but that it is good in the sense of its innocence and its uprightness. The evil that enters the physical world is not inherent to it being physical. The universe, like Adam and Eve, was innocent in that it did not know evil. We can say this too. To sin is not equal to being human. I remember a professor in college told me that, and I was like, what are you talking about? Of course it is. No, Adam and Eve existed as humans and were sinless. Jesus Christ was fully human, and he never sinned. And you, in the new creation, will exist forever without sin. In this age, we are sinners. But that is not where we started or where we will end. And so the universe was upright, it was righteous, and it was good before the sight of God. This flies counter to other religions like Buddhism, 
where you want to escape the physicality of this world, deny everything so that you can reach this enlightenment, this nirvana. And Buddhism just builds off of other strains of Hinduism. But Christianity says evil is not located in the physical universe. It is not inherent to how God made everything. And so creation is good. And it's even good post-fall. The goodness of creation is not wholly lost. Yes, creation is subjected to fertility and corruption, but it remains good. And you and I experience that every moment. From the clothes you wear to the air you breathe, you experience the goodness of God through his creation. The other day I was out, I was out back at my brother-in-law's house and my sons and I and the cousins, we were, we were playing football, which meant I was the, always the quarterback, which is good because I get less tired that way. And we were playing football back and forth. The kids were having a blast, and the sunset was coming down over the lake. And for a moment, I just stopped and pondered the beauty of God in his creation. Don't grow tired of that. Again, the other day, we were gathering with some friends, and one of them made this apple crisp, and it was the best apple crisp I've had in years. And I told her, this is the best apple crisp I've had in years. The goodness of God in creation. From time to time, I have these moments of clarity where all the frustration of living in a fallen world just kind of melts away. My kids are playing peacefully together, and the house is calm and somewhat quiet for a moment. The goodness of God. The warmness of my wife's hand in my hand. The goodness of God in creation. Such things are not good in an impersonal universe. But if God created as he did, then they are good and you would experience them every moment of your day. Don't miss that. We're moving into Thanksgiving this week. You have much to be thankful for. The goodness of God surrounds you. Now there are two extremes we must guard against when we are interacting with the goodness of creation. Two things we, we have to avoid. And the first is the obvious one. Don't start worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Because creation is so good and our, hearts can, our, our eyes can see it, we can touch it, we are so much prone to make all of life about creation itself. I don't just mean nature, but I mean existing in this world. That we can turn the good gifts of God into idols. And that is exactly what Paul warns us about in Romans chapter 1. That we exchange the creator for the creation. And we worship the things that God gave us as a blessing. We pervert and use to bring about our own damnation. We must Avoid that. Instead, let the goodness of creation push you to praise and glorify God over and over and over again. The second extreme is the one we've mentioned. We could vilify creation. We can call it evil. We can reject God and his goodness. And if we're honest, that one feels more holy to us. We sometimes have this warped view of holiness. Except the curmudgeon, the one who doesn't enjoy God's goodness. Just keep the physical things away from me so I can be close to God. 
And the biblical worldview says you experience God through the goodness of his creation. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And I consider this a stark warning because he writes this about creation post the fall. He says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Paul warns here about the teaching of demons. A couple things you have to, have to take into account here. First, that demons are active in teaching, in ideas, in worldviews. If your only vision of demons is that they possess you, then you've got a really incomplete view of demons. How do they impact this world? They put forward ideas and worldviews and systems that stand against the knowledge of God in Christ. And here, the demonic teaching is not what we would expect. The hedonism, that we would just get as much pleasure as you can. That's a form of demonic teaching, but that's not the one Paul stresses here. Rather, he says the teaching of demons is that which forbids food and sex. That's the doctrine of demons. They take the goodness of God and his creation and they call it evil. Our hearts like to locate evil in the object, in the thing, instead of where it actually is, which is in our hearts. And we do that because it's easy to blame something else besides ourselves. You know what the problem with our society is? It's Twitter and Facebook. Those things are just inherently evil. I got here. It makes it easier for you to sin in certain ways. But the evil is located in the human heart, not in the tool. You know what the problem is? It's your smartphone. They're just inherently evil, and you shouldn't have one. No, smartphones are just a tool, a good gift from God that can be used for good or evil. And the problem is our heart. Now, to be sure, the better the technology, the greater the temptation for you. To be sure, some people don't have the maturity for these things. Your kids don't need a smartphone at age two. But the problem isn't the tool itself, it's us. Or as the popular saying goes, guns don't kill people, people do. The problem isn't the tool, it's the human heart. We besmirch God and his goodness by calling what he made good, evil. And so we must not do that. We must guard against perverting his goodness by lusting after his creation, and by denying its goodness. Third, we cannot forget that creation is cursed and longs for restoration. And saying that creation is good does not neglect the reality of evil. Some in this room have experienced great and unspeakable evil. 
Christian worldview does not deny that. So evil exists. It impacts creation. We see this in the forms of natural evil like floods and tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes. But we can be sure that the problem is not what Gnosticism or Buddhism or others assert, the physical universe. Rather, the problem is moral. And so the biblical solution is very different. So listen to me very carefully on this. We are not trying to liberate ourselves from bondage to the physical universe. Instead, the physical universe is seeking liberation from the consequences of our sin. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says, Gnosticism is wrong, that what you want is to be liberated from physical reality. Rather, it's physical reality that needs to be liberated from our sin. It's a false gospel. Flips everything on its head. And the liberation of creation comes with the revealing, Paul says, of the children of God who are adopted through the work of Christ. That creation itself longs for and groans to be free. And that freedom has started to break into this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Creation wants man to be redeemed. Because creation, to an extent, was made for you and me. Ultimately, it reflects the glory of God. But God placed man in creation to work it and to keep it. In other words, creation was meant to be our giant playground. And in that, as we reflect our creator, we bring glory to God. But now it is subjected to futility and corruption. And Christ and his people are the first fruits of that being set to right. That when Christ returns, sin, death, and Satan are defeated. And creation will be free. And as a part of creation, you and I will be free as well. So let's apply this. Let's make some practical applications. First, don't call evil what God calls good. No matter how holy it can feel to be against certain foods, be against enjoying the goodness of creation, to think that picking up seashells is a waste of time. That's not holiness. It's not. Rather, holiness leads to joy. Not contentless joy, or an ethereal joy, but the joy of knowing God through what He has given you. And so be thankful for the many blessings He has given you. Thank God before you eat. Thank God for your favorite recreational activity. Thank Him for the beauty of creation. Thank Him for the love of your spouse. Thank Him for your children and your grandchildren. You are beset by His goodness. Let the goodness of creation push you to worship God. Second, don't worship creation. Don't make your whole life about the here and now. 
we really are to be investing in this life for the kingdom that is coming. That the best way to enjoy what God has given you is to not invest everything right here and right now. Third, use the goodness of this world and its brokenness to fuel your desire for that coming kingdom. You taste God's goodness, it points to the glory of the new creation. As you taste the brokenness of this world, it reminds you that things are not as it should be and that Jesus is setting them right. And we long, like creation does, for that day where sin is no more, death is no more, futility and corruption are no more. Because Christ died for your sins and he rose again in victory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you created this universe good. We thank you that you did not abandon your creation to corruption and sin and death. That in your love you sent your son to die for us. We pray, Lord, that as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, that we would not be blinded by the things of this life and that we 